Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Michael Fraser. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Soundweavers Podcast. I am Rosanna Moore, your host, and today I am joined by our wonderful co-host and producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Hey, Adam, how are you doing today? Hi, Rosie. Now, this is our episode three of our first season of Soundweavers, and today we have the incredible and wonderful composer Michael Frazier. He's actually our first composer we're having on the podcast and we're so excited to talk to him and explore some of his music today. Hi Mike, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey Rosie, I'm doing very well. Thank you guys for having me. Super excited to have a little chat with you all. Absolutely. So let's get started. You write a lot of chamber music. Can you talk a little bit about how and when you started writing for these small groups and give a few examples of different chamber combinations you've written for? Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, when I first started out uh, performing music, like in my career, um, I was always part of concert bands, symphonic bands, things of that nature. I'm a woodwind player, started off on clarinet and played saxophone, bassoon, etc. So in, I didn't know you played it, bassoon. That's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's one of my one of my primary instruments, actually. Um, a lot of fun. But yeah, so you know, my my main background with performance has always been in sort of these like larger wind bands, effectively. So when I first started considering like what I felt really comfortable writing for and what I wanted to really explore, it always was chamber groups that featured the instruments that I'm most familiar with. It's always it's always happened to been kind of focused on those instruments. It's always been, you know, the the typical concert band instrumentation. Um, sometimes percussion, as I, you know, wrote more and more, percussion was introduced a lot more. But in, in the beginning, it really was just kind of sitting to winds. And this is all my undergrad. Um, that's when I started composing. Um, and I, I'd say that over the course of my kind of education, both at my undergrad at the University of South Florida and at Eastman, my goal and direction has been to really try to incorporate more and more unique sounds and instruments into the context of what I consider to be a chamber music, um, which is interesting because with so many varieties of instruments and the sound worlds that you can kind of develop with numerous amounts of instruments, I've never actually gravitated towards large orchestras or ensembles. The, the most I've ever, I mean, I've written for one ensemble once or twice. I've written for orchestra before, but um, I felt most comfortable writing for anywhere from three to five instruments at the minimum. At most, maybe I'll do like 10, 10, 11 instruments. And of course, I've written symphonietta as well, but that's certainly the the most I would write for and the most that I would be comfortable with. Absolutely. Write for what you know. I think that's always uh, a good plan going forward. So can you describe a little bit about your chamber music compositional style? You know, for all of my 
works. I always start out the same way where it's either on a piano or with like an instrument that I'm familiar with, like saxophone or flute, something of that nature. But I always begin with an instrument that I can actually play. And most of my initial sketching and process just revolves around improvisation. Just me making something up, playing something that sounds good, playing something that I think sounds good, and then having the idea or mentality that, okay, what I've now written down on this instrument is going to be the general or the base idea for a larger scale work. And that's true throughout all my music. It, it always begins that way. Um, and when I was younger as a composer, I always began writing with like process oriented music, like when I have charts and schematics and pitch class arrangements and, and all these sorts of things, which I found really fun and interesting. I think it's a, a great way to compose. But after developing my own style, I realized that um, really basing it and centering it upon my own performative interests and my own improvisational interests that I found the music to be more worthwhile and more enjoyable to kind of uh, chisel out into a more complex entity in the end. So, Michael, I think, I mean, you've you kind of already talked about this a little bit, but I think one of the things that I'm always fascinated by with composers is um, whether the music comes first or whether the instrument and, and timbral choices come first. And it's interesting to hear you describe it from the perspective of someone who plays these instruments and starting from an improvisatory standpoint. But um, I, I wonder, do you, um, do you ever find yourself starting with just the sound first or does it uh, in terms of the, the pitch and rhythm or pretty much always start from the timbre? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I would say, I mean, the kind of cop-out answer is that it depends. It depends on the work and it depends on yeah. what exactly I'm approaching. But actually, in I would say in general, I'm always concerned with, with both, actually. I'm, I'm always concerned with not only the sort of pitches I'm relying on, but also I'm all, like from the get-go, from the conception, I'm already considering the way the timbre will play a significant role in terms of what I'm playing. So when I'm playing on the piano, for instance, and I'm, and I usually will do kind of like these massive, like eight to 10 chord, eight to 10 pitch uh, chords, even then I'll think, okay, I know for a fact that X instrument will be in the bottom register here, you know, things of that nature. So I'm certainly always thinking about timbre and how each instrument will kind of adopt the roles within these larger sound roles that I'm initially beginning from. Do you find that your process changes at all when you are commissioned versus when you're when you're doing your own composition? No, no, not at all. You know, the only thing that actually changes is that the instruments for sure, for the most part, are already decided for me. Um, for instance, when I've written for your trio, uh, Trio Alexander, of course, I knew that I was going to have to write for flute, viola, harp. That that makes it really easy. And then you know that does influence the the thought process because then I'm automatically knowing, okay. I have to be able to put the harp into this or I have to be able to fit the flute sound into this, that kind of thing. Um, but whenever it's just a composition that it's on kind of my own accord, um, yeah, it, you know, the instrumentation may just come later. I may just play it on the piano first or the flute first and then think like, oh, you know, that'll sound good on guitar later. Mm -hmm. And when you're, so when you're composing for a specific ensemble, like the harp trio perhaps, um, do you find yourself influenced by previous compositions for that ensemble or do you really strive to go from your own position first and and wherever that might take you yeah it, it always begins from what i consider to be my own take on the instrumentation in, in the ensemble mm -hmm. um 
but later on or during the actual process of composing and figuring things out is actually when I would perhaps go and listen to different ensembles just to get a, a better sense of how the sound is. And, and I do that just because, you know, it's not like I have access to a trio right in front of me that I can refer to every single day, right? So one of the wonderful things about the times we live in in terms of technology is that having access to just basically an endless library of sound and examples is just available at our fingertips, right? So. Um, in, during the process of me composing is when I will then opt to say, let me go listen to a few trios or, you know, what have you, just to get a better sense of what the sound is. And that way I can kind of keep it in my mind as I'm writing things out. It depends on the ensemble too, um, because I play clarinet. If I'm running a clarinet quartet, for instance, I don't really have to do that because I know what the ensemble sounds like. But if it's something that I'm unfamiliar with, like a percussion ensemble piece, then certainly I'd want to explore more audio examples just to really get myself imagining how this will eventually sound with actual performers. Another I just wanted to interject with regards to writing for unusual, I say unusual um, ensembles, basically something that isn't a string quartet. You've actually written two harp trios for us. So I think you're one of very few composers who has written for our setup. Is, is this something that you look to do with other ensembles that you write for, write them multiple pieces so that you're basically building a catalog for them to play multiple, uh, multiple works of yours? Yeah, you know, that's actually a really good question. And I hadn't really thought about it beforehand. Um, as you know, because I wrote the tree or the piece for your trio, it was of course like a prescribed instrumentation. So I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I'll make this work. I haven't done it before, but it'll be fun. And the second piece I had done was completely based on that experience. So the familiarity was there, the comfort was there, your, your guys' sound was there. So it was a lot easier to kind of approach from that regard. Um, and then in terms of unusual ensembles, what's interesting actually is that I haven't really considered really expanding upon the portfolio of the ensemble actually, but I will admit that the biggest inspiration for continuing with these kind of unusual arrangements has been via the harp. Yay. <laughs> not, not, the, <laughs> not the B favorites. I mean, Adam, I love viola, I promise. Uh, <laughs> Everyone knows that I pester composers. I have a line yeah. on my biography saying I pester composers for a living. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, so, but but honestly, it's it's the harp that I've grown so like fond of and so comfortable with. And the, I feel like the harp fits so well just as a general kind of underlying base for whatever I'm approaching. So actually the perhaps strangest ensemble that I wrote for was uh, this piece called Ursula Minor, which is for tenor sax, piano and harp. So same thing, it's an ensemble that, it's a trio that's not perhaps too, too out. I mean, you don't really see those kind of trios anywhere. No. But for me, I knew the harp would be significant in that it would be kind of like the underlying ground for the piece piano of course i added in there because i was thinking oh extension of sound i you know i can get up to 10 notes at once like i want to really have deep lush harmony and then saxophone of course was based on <laughs> my own bias i mean i play saxophone so i wanted to actually read an actual you know, a real tenor sax piece for once yeah so, i i must say i love that piece i i know i was thank you um, thank you i privileged enough to uh give the premiere of that piece but the nice thing with these quirky ensembles and Adam I don't know if you found this as well with uh, working with different setups but 
I, I've had people approach me about that piece that are in harp mm-hmm. and saxophone duos. And you can find a stray piano player and join along with that. And the, the opposite is true that there are a bunch of saxophone and piano duos as well. And they just need to find a harpist. So I think that's a good way of looking at these quirky, I say quirky ensembles, slightly unusual ensembles that again, aren't wind quintet or a string quartet. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, actually further to that point, when working with kind of these, you know, these quirky or unusual or different ensembles, it's always, I always find it easier to to write them in a smaller scale, you know, writing trios or quartets with these very unique and different instrumentations makes it not only a bit easier to put together in terms of like getting the performers and getting them to kind of envelop in the sound, but I find that that just in general, it's a bit more manageable to recruit a smaller ensemble that are very different as opposed to if I wanted to perform like a 15 or 16 per, uh, player like Sinfonietta, for instance. And that's, and you know, that's one of the, one of the other reasons why I've really just gravitated towards really enjoying just a smaller ensemble sound in terms of chamber music. It's just, you know, when I, when I can write for my friends or colleagues or people who are interested when I can really kind of focus and write specific music that I know the person will be playing it makes the whole experience a lot more manageable for me. And it makes it a lot more just intimate for me in general. Yeah. Can I, I, I just want to ask um, what might be a slightly strange question, but mm-hmm. I, I personally think of chamber music as a progressive art. And I think a lot of people would agree that composers often use chamber music as a forum for trying out new ideas. Um, so I wonder, uh, I mean, do you feel the same thing or do you find that, um, that chamber music uh, kind of occupies the same space as other types of composition for you. No, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's a completely different space entirely. Um, you know, the most unique and different experiences that I've kind of had or seen with music has typically been with chamber music. It's not really large orchestras because they play for the most part the same repertoire, even to the extent of like wind ensembles or symphonic bands or symphonic orchestras. It's, it's kind of the same literature, but the most unique things I've seen at Eastman, for example, with all of my colleagues, it's always chamber. It's always small ensembles, even if it's like a string quartet, something conventional. It's, it's, I think it's, it allows for a composer to really just explore new possibilities for themselves, new sound worlds for themselves, while still kind of adhering to an ensemble which is smaller, more intimate, more familiar perhaps, but not as overwhelming or large scale as a larger ensemble. To take this conversation down a slightly different track, uh, during your entire time at Eastman, I know that you worked with ears. Now, for our non-Eastman listeners out there, this is the third time that I've done this to make sure that it works. Ears stands for the Eastman Audio Research Studio. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this organization and your work with them and whether the use of electronics has uh, bled into what you do as a composer as well? Sure. Um, so the so EARS has been kind of its new slash more most recent name. It was taken over um, by Oliver Schneller a couple of years back. Beforehand, it was known as ECMC or um, Eastman Computer Music Center, which is much more fitting for the the name itself, actually. So, so ECMC, of course, basing its roots in specific computer music, as it was called in a computer music research, was led by Alan Schindler. 
decades and decades ago. Um, of course, he passed away a few years ago. And but right before that, Oliver Schneller took over the studio and then opted to rename it Ears. And in his in his view, the name Ears, so audio research, was a more broad and general kind of category or category a categorizational tool for like allowing students to really know that oh we're not just doing computer music you can actually research sound on its own here you know it's, it's a very different take than what um my experience with alan was so basically the ears has developed where the focus has not been like as i said before not only on the, comp the composition of music via the tool of computer or any other kind of uh, technological assistance, but rather the focus on sound, sound design, acoustics, um, acousmatic music, all sorts of things. Very, very broad general studio now that really addresses and tackles a bunch of different topics in the world of electronic and electroacoustic music. Um, so with my work there, it's primarily been one where um, one of our main services at EARS is to provide uh, assistance with students who are performing works that feature um, electronics, just in general. It could be playback, so simple, you know, push a push space bar and it plays a sound. It could be uh, amplification, recording. It could even be up to the most complex. It could be actual electroacoustic music where there's actual processing and recording involved in real time during a performance. So the interesting thing in regards to me about that is as much as I really enjoy working, or I have enjoyed working with ears, and as much as I've been kind of uh, comfortable with and learning and really growing fond of like recording and things of that nature, I've actually, I've always preferred to keep my music to be relatively just acoustic in its main focus. Um, that's not to say that I haven't written electronic music because I have, um, I've written tape pieces, I've written, um, electroacoustic works, things of that nature, but I, you know, my, my main focus and my own priority has always been just to kind of keep the focus on acoustic music, um, which is, it's, it's always kind of a conflict for myself because I'm aware that the introduction of the electronic world in terms of music really just broadens the expanse of the amount of possibilities that are possible for the composition or, or the creation of a work. I mean, you can do basically anything when you throw a computer in play, but perhaps it's that overwhelming sense of there's so much I could be doing that has really driven me to only prioritize my own actual work to being simply acoustic. Or at the most, perhaps it would be like playback and an acoustic music. You know, the, the intermingling of computers and performance at the same time is something that I, I just, I feel doesn't really fit into what I strive to do the most, at least right now. That's really interesting that you've done so much work within this field, yet you've not really done it with your actual composition. I think that's interesting that you've kept this as two separate strands of your career, basically. Uh, and I, I, again, I know from working with you, it's, I know you've helped me out on a couple of performances that I've done, uh, Oh, what's the piece? Takamitsu's uh, stanza, yeah, which is a harp and tape piece. And obviously the last movement of the Crown of Ariadne, I yeah. know I had all of you come and set up all, <laughs> all of the um, speakers around Hatch Hall uh, yeah. so that we could do the playback for that. But talking of Takamitsu, I know that you're a huge fan of his music and you did a, your thesis project um, for your master's program into his music. Uh, what is it about that sound world uh, or just anything about him that inspired or changed the way you think about composition? 
the biggest influence Takamitsu has had on me um, is actually not so much musical, but rather just philosophical um, or more pertaining to just an aesthetic idea um, or ideas rather. But in, in listening to Takamitsu, the first time I ever did it when I was like an undergrad, it was, you know, I wasn't really struck by anything. I was kind of like, oh, this is just more, you know, music of the same sort that I'm kind of listening to right now. Um, and it wasn't until my master's where I really started to get into the entire kind of catalog or library of Takamitsu's works. And I was finding that the soundscapes that he composes and all of the interesting little underlying mechanisms to his music, which are not overly complex, um, they actually, I, I found myself really gravitating towards, towards what he was doing because they didn't feel like technical in a way, if that makes sense. His music, at least to me, when I listen to it, it feels so organic and opening, flowing, that it attracted me to this idea that oh, perhaps I should just be really focusing on writing music in that way, in the most organic and flowing and open way possible, as opposed to trying to ground things in technicality and rigor in a way. So the piece that actually that I listened to that really got me just amazed was his um, Towards the Sea. You know, there's a few different versions of the work, but I, I, I found myself really enjoying the version with or orchestra involved. But it was just so it felt so organic and just unfolding seeming like like there was nothing really imposing or influencing talking to to do so it for me it just felt as if he was trying to express or suggest a narrative um and the listener and performer to an extent were were just kind of guiding the entire time just guiding the suggestion not really acknowledging or firmly saying this is what the music is meant to be but rather that it could be this or this and follow along and decide for yourself. So these, like this thought process for me was just, it was like a revelation in a way because I was so used to trying to think about music in the most grounded and organized sense possible. And even though I had also improvised a lot beforehand, um, I had never really incorporated that. It's the same thing. It's there. I, I used to just write as just organized and controlled as possible. And then I, my pieces would emerge from that. But once I started to approach things with a different kind of aesthetic view, I found that my music started to just open up and really root itself in just the actual aspect of improvisation or performance, just openness in general. Um, the The major aesthetic view that, or principle that I most was interested in was the one of Ma, which is, it's very hard to kind of, I mean, there's no way to really, it kind of boiled down to one definition of it. But in my interpretation of Ma, it's that a silence or gap in an artwork of any form is just as full of energy as the actual audible or the visual that you're engaging with. And that certainly was one of the biggest mind-blowing things for me entirely because even before then, I had never really used silence or rest in my music. You know, things were kind of just constantly moving or developing. And it wasn't until I started to actually see that, oh, even Takamitsu is really aware of Ma and its utilization in in an art form that I was like, oh, maybe let me, let me try this too. Let me see if this also helps to kind of push and promote the idea of just open organicness that I was really interested in. And sure enough, that's exactly what led to kind of my current overall state of composition and music enjoyment, one where 
I'm so cons I'm not only concerned with the actual pitch or rhythm on the page. I'm not concerned with how things are organized in terms of their voicings and how orchestration plays a role into it, but also how someone will approach like a space in music or a gap. And that's not only just a like a lack of sound. It's not like it's not just silence. It could also be the space uh, vertically between sound, like perhaps a lower registered instrument mixed with a higher registered instrument like what what that is also a vertical gap and to me there's also a lot of really interesting nuance and harmonic uh interplay there as well so michael i want to talk with you a little bit um taking a, a turn towards um broader life right now um but uh, you know, obviously we are in a particularly turbulent time um, in our society with uh, all of the issues around COVID-19 and police brutality and um, just uh, it's a really challenging time for us all. Um, but I, I wonder if you'd be willing to talk with us a little bit about how the current events are shaping you both professionally and personally. So for those who don't know, my ethnicity is both African-American and Latino or Hispanic. My family on my mom's side is from Ecuador and South America. So growing up with my mom's side, um, Spanish and Latino culture was what I was mostly involved with. Um, Spanish was my first language, um, although I learned English like right at the same time. So that's why I had no accent, really. But it, you know, m my association with blackness was really just kind of non-existent i would say because i was not enveloped in that specific culture or that type of culture when i was growing up when i was younger you know i would go to school and i would go home and then there'd be my latino family and that's how it was and it wasn't until i went to my undergrad where i started to really actually realize that oh i'm also black why have i not given so much attention to this and certainly it's because you know my dad was never around i never really engaged with my father's side at all so, um, and that's not to say that I didn't engage with black culture in general. I mean, I grew up listening to hip hop and rap and, you know, things of that nature. And, but it, it didn't really, to me, it didn't, it didn't feel like I was engaging with a culture. It felt like, oh, it's just hip hop. Oh, it's just rap. Um, but again, so it wasn't until my undergrad and I took a class called the black experience actually, when I realized like, wait a minute, there's actually a lot of culture and history that I'm just like unknowingly neglecting because I I've myself have felt so just attuned to my Latino heritage that I just completely disregarded the fact that there's actually much more to me than I had initially imagined. What I've done as of late has been to really appreciate and approach the artistry that I associate with blackness and specifically it's the music of jazz which has been my favorite type of music to listen to. It's been my biggest influence in a lot of my writing. Um, uh, even music, uh, music of rock and roll, of funk, of hip hop, of rap, all of those things to me are very clearly black art. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, only African-Americans can do this type of artwork. You know, it's everybody's allowed to kind of really involve themselves and explore something that they feel like they really enjoy, which I think is great. But for me, you know, I would listen to jazz or I would listen to hip hop and I would never think that there was an association of color with it. And what, what, what's most striking about this is that it also means that I wasn't considering my own race or ethnicity with my own work either. 
you know, I didn't think about myself as being a black composer or a Latino composer. I was like, oh yeah, I'm a composer, um, which on paper might be might be valid, but in terms of aesthetic or philosophical influence or the way I approach things, it's not valid at all. My listening is rooted in jazz music, which is a black art. My my approach to orchestration and other things might be rooted in hip hop, which is a black art. So these things have always been a part of me. And it wasn't until late that I've really just been going kind of head first into thinking about and understanding the significance of what black culture has done for me as an artist, whether I was aware of it or not up to this point. One of the things that I have found um, interesting in my conversations with a lot of my colleagues is that they feel in a large way like um, they, when they entered the academy, that was when they were really um, forced to reckon with their own racial and gender identities. And I hear a little bit of that reflected um, in your description of how you started to explore your black heritage when you entered your undergrad. So I wonder, um, I mean, do you, do you find the same kind of experience is true for you? And was it something specifically about your um, experience in the academy that steered you in that direction? You know, I'm not entirely sure what it is that initially drove me to kind of be aware or realize that there was a culture that I was a part of that I wasn't really actively participating in. Um, I, th- I think perhaps what it amounted to was just the music in general. You know, in I, I listened to jazz the most initially in my undergrad. So the same time that I would have taken this Black experience course and then when I would have initially started to realize, oh, wow, I should actually be thinking about Black artistry more often. So I think my interests and developments in terms of kind of not coming to terms with but just being more aware of my own blackness was completely tied to music itself and what I will say is that it didn't happen necessarily because of my own education or institution because as we all know the the pedagogy of education in terms of music is to focus primarily on white male composers of an archaic practice who are antiquated the practices are antiquated and there's like nothing else discussed there's no discussion really about um like asian music there's no discussion about native american music there's no discussion about south american music which even me who has a heritage in south america like i know almost nothing about it and it was kind of actually frustrating to think about because in the 10 years that I've been in university for all my degrees, it's been the same thing. It's been, let's talk about conventional Western music history and theory. And the frustration comes when it almost feels like they, there's an expectation to apply that exact same background education into your own musical ideology or voice or self even. And that was never true with me. I had, I have never personally been, I mean, I know music theory, I know history, but it doesn't it doesn't really influence the way I approach a lot of things, at least not like really not as strongly as other things. The things that have really inter- or influenced me the most have been jazz, black artistry, hip hop, 
sampling, borrowing, repurposing, things of this nature. And all these things are just tied with, with my own black heritage. Not, not one bit of it actually comes from the typical education that all of us would be going through. So in, in thinking about how, like when I became aware of this, it was, it was always because I was thinking, despite my history class wanting me to listen to broke music, I'm listening to hip hop because I feel like there's more here for me right now than there is with Baroque music. And that's not to say that I don't like Baroque music. I mean, I like all types of music. I like basically everything. But it, what made the most significant musical impact on me was not what they were teaching me. It's what I was growing to be aware of and what I was growing most fond of in my own education. Thank you so much for um, talking about this. I, I think it's so incredibly important and it's wonderful to hear your views on this. Do you find that there is a difference between the role of new music and how it plays in the music um, field or the academic field uh, versus uh, how it is seen in the community? Honestly, it feels like two different uh, spheres entirely, I would say. When when I think about the sphere that we all operate in as like modern musicians um, who practice art music, you know, whatever that means, but that sort of music, it, it only ever really feels as if the audience is one that is centered around like a school or perhaps a group of performers who do this regularly, things of that nature. But when I think of community, I think everybody, everybody around an area who can participate in the experience of a musical concert. And, and honestly, it, it really depends, I think, on the type of music being performed that will engage a certain audience or not, which makes sense. You know, people have different tastes. People want to see different things. Um, the only issue, I suppose, is that if people have an expectation of what it will be, like they say, they see, for instance, oh, electronic music concert, and there's nothing else about it, they might think, oh, is this electronica? Is this dance music? But they're not going to know that, oh, it's music concrete from first year undergrads at Eastman, you know, that kind of thing, right? It's, <laughs> it, there's so much information that is both missing and granted when you give the kind of the general idea of what a concert might be or, or what the music performance might be that it directly influence, influences the type of audience that will participate in it. So, you know, my music has been, I'd say, mostly performed for an audience that is like us. One that is, you know, we know more about typical music than other people. We specialize in various musical fields and it allows us to really be a bit more open-minded about the kind of things we listen to. But, you know, I, like I, I can show my music to like my mom, for instance, and she has, you know, she's not a musician at all and she'll like it because she probably, you know, perhaps she thinks it sounds good, but, you know, she wouldn't really choose to go to a new music concert you know, the following week, just because you heard my stuff. So, you know, it, it, it honestly feels like we just operate in different spheres entirely. And I, I'm not sure. I think that the easiest way to really try to close the gap in terms of these two different spheres of like audience and community listening is to either a, you have music that is both appealing and engaging to both crowds, which has a whole bunch of problems associated with it, especially probably from composers who are haughty and decide that they have to criticize everything. Or you 
you just don't connect the two at all. You just acknowledge that they're different and then you leave it that way and you keep the two separate entirely. Um, I'm certainly more in favor of the first one, of the former, where I certainly believe that there's a, poss- a possible way for people to uh, engage with or experience a concert with music that they know and that they enjoy. Uh, and then also new things that they can perhaps start to get into and be like, oh, actually, this is really interesting. I want to know more about this type of music. Yeah, I didn't know people were doing this, that kind of thing. I think that us as modern musicians and us, of course, being so so close closely attuned to the educational sphere, I think a lot of us, a lot of time, don't even actually really think about this. I think we only ever think about, oh, I'm putting a recital on for my colleagues and my family and my studio. That's it. They don't think about, you know, how could I get the community to come and see this? You know, I, I definitely see it more community involvement whenever it's perhaps like an art show or if it's like an art show plus music concert, then people start to really come in and get engaged with. Or, um, for instance, like Ears has had concerts at the art gallery in Rochester. And that's been like the perfect example of this kind of mass collaboration between artists and musicians that have perf- like managed to really invite outsiders to what we do to get in and really appreciate and kind of see something new and different. To follow on from that, do you think that there's more that we should be doing as professional musicians to entice people from the community to come and watch the, uh, as you used the example, the first year uh, kids <laughs> yeah. doing, doing their um, their whale noises with the uh, electronic music? Do you think we <laughs> should be doing more to engage with the community? Um, I think yes and no. I think to an extent, it's completely valid and okay to sometimes say, oh, this is a recital just for my fellow harpists, for instance, or, you know, this is for a, this is a recital for musicians who will like really understand what I'm doing in terms, in terms of music. But the way I've seen it actually, the most effective, at least for me, the most, what I've seen, the most efficient way to really kind of get just a new type of person to attend this concert has always been when music is paired with something else. To me, it's never been like, oh, here's an electronic music concert that is not electronic and not dance, not techno. It's it's only ever been us. But if it's other people involved, it's always because it's also an art show. It's also featuring an artist. It's also featuring film, student films. It's also featuring theater or dance. It's things of that nature. Whenever music has been the partner with another form of art is when I find that it's most effective in unifying different uh different people from different uh, artistic backgrounds to kind of come together and enjoy a very new and unique experience. Of course, that experience is no longer just musical. So perhaps then this is like a folly just in and of itself because we want them to come listen to more music. But I think that actually it's okay that music is partnered with something else in an effort to bring more people together from all over. So Michael, I'd like to uh, turn the conversation more toward um, performers and composers who are just getting started in their career. Um, and I think the um, place that I'd like to, to start with this conversation is just to ask you what you feel are the most vital skills that you have developed and um, really leaned on throughout your career. Mm-hmm. What I would say is the most kind of monumental development for me has been my my awareness that the music that I engage with does not have to be necessarily concrete or 
you know, it has to be as is. When I, when I think about music now, I always think about it as a suggestion, which allows me as listener or a composer or performer to interpret and approach things in a way that is more unique to me, therefore allowing me to engage with it in a way that's personal. Um, and, you know, speaking from a composer standpoint, the way I would approach this there is to say, if you are just starting out as a composer, know that you're allowed to break rules. In fact, you should be breaking basically all the rules and do whatever you want, which seems scary to say, do whatever you want. And it, perhaps it seems not helpful to say, do whatever you want. But what this means is just because you have, for instance, like a background with basic theory doesn't mean that following that theory exactly is what will yield perhaps the most significant or interesting musical result for yourself. I think what what comes as more interesting in this regard is to th consider things outside of the music itself that will then influence and impact your decision. Um, a lot of my music, you know, my, my music, I don't strive to tell stories or have specific narratives, but my music is always influenced by something that is extra musical. Um, oftentimes it's the stars or the moon, I will be stargazing and I will be just taken back and I will then therefore feel influenced to write something based on that. So my awareness and acceptance that there are influences that are not musical has played a tremendous role in my work because it's allowed me to just prioritize and focus the art form in a way that is not so adherent to what perhaps music can typically be or typically be grounded or defined as. So we're going to wrap up the conversation with one final question. It's the ultimate question. How do you want your work to be remembered? What would make me most happy, which won't matter what I'm dead. It doesn't matter if I'm happy or not, but what, what, <laughs> what <true>. I <laughs> would appreciate and be most fond of is knowing that my music or perhaps just my stance and my philosophy in general was enough to influence or encourage someone just to go out of their comfort zone and develop and engage themselves with things that they just wouldn't have done so beforehand. And even better would be to then adopt those new things as being part of their own voice. So we're going to wrap up here. I, I just want to say a huge, huge thank you for taking the time to meet with us today and have just such an incredible, nuanced and interesting conversation with us. Uh, Michael, can you tell us where people can find you? We will put links to all your socials and website and things uh, in the description, but where can people find you online? Sure, sure. I've recently been trying to upload all my music to SoundCloud because I haven't been neglecting it there. So you will find that link with up-to-date stuff. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, we hope that you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Michael Fraser and performed by Trio Alexander. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. Thank you.